Hey everyone, we're coming to Salt Lake City, Utah and Phoenix, Arizona this fall. Yeah, October 23rd, we're going to be at Salt Lake City's Grand Theater. And then the next night, October 24th, we'll be in Phoenix. And we added a second show to our Melbourne show, right? That's right, a second earlier show in Melbourne. So uh, you can get all the information for all of these shows at sysklive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Rowland. This is going to be an interesting one, because I don't know how to say the lady's last name. (laughs) Jerry's over there with her spider monkey on her shoulder. Mm -hmm. A dead hummingbird hanging from her necklace. (laughs) Just like any other day. Yep. We're here in La Casa Azul. Right, and she's gotten a hold of some eyebrow pencil and filled in between (laughs) the two across the bridge of her nose. So I'm excited about this. A, because you said Frida Kahlo before Frida Kahlo. We, we started recording. Frida Kahlo. <laughs> and B, because, you know, my family's fascination with this woman and her work. No. We've talked about it before. That's okay, though. We've done a thousand episodes. We have talked about it before? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll get back into it. Yeah, we're way into Frida. Emily is borderline obsessed. Is she a freedom maniac? She is. That's awesome. And my daughter loves her. You know, there's like Frida, I hate to use the word, but kind of cults, devotional groups Mm -hmm. where um, they basically dress up and and are like Frida, Mm -hmm. like channel Frida, Kalo. Yeah, because as one of these articles that we source from points out near the end, um, not only does she draw in people for her art, Mm -hmm. But she draws in uh, feminists and she draws in uh, women who have suffered miscarriages mm-hmm. and and disabled people who have suffered great uh, pain mm-hmm. and chronic pain in their life. Yeah. So she, through her life, uh, she's able to um, touch a lot of people because of her life. And I'm sure with any artist where if you know, the more you know about the artist, the more you can appreciate their art. Sure. With Frida Kahlo, it's almost like you got to quit saying that. Frida Kahlo, Kahlo, Kahlo. Yeah, my whole life I've been saying Frida Kahlo. (laughs) I like it; It rolls off the tongue. Yeah, but you know, let's give her the due respect. Um, the when did we start doing that? I don't know. Okay, so um, you almost you just almost can't fully appreciate any piece of her work without knowing at least the basics of her story, I think. Well, yeah, and certainly once you know the basics, you're like, oh. Right. That's where all this comes from. It, it really makes sense. Yeah. But she is a great artist, for sure. I was going back and looking at some of her art. And, you know, I'm familiar with her. I know a little bit about her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely saw some pieces that I didn't realize before. And just from researching this, I very much came to appreciate her even more. Like, she's a great artist. Just the, the techniques she used... The imagery she used, the symbolism, I really dig it all. And it's like you can appreciate it because it gives you a visceral reaction. Mm-hmm. But you, the average person can also get what she's feeling or what she's saying without being like, this means this and that means that. Mm-hmm. You, you just kind of get it visually. Mm-hmm. It's something that you can get and appreciate pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, we've seen her work in museums all over the world, basically every new city we go to, we see, is there any uh, Frida Kahlo work there? Have you been to La Casa Azul? 
No, but that'll that's that's going to happen. Oh, I'm sure. I was going to say bucket list, but it, it's just on the list. Right. I'm not. I don't want to do it when I'm 80. Right. <laughs> with with um, Jack Nicholson or something. No. With Morgan Freeman. No, no, no. We're going to go down there for sure. <clears throat> All right. So let's let's start chronologically, huh? Let's start at the beginning. That makes sense. So Frida Kahlo. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born back in 1907. Although she used to. Being a revolutionary, she used to say that she was born in 1910, which was the year of the Mexican Revolution. But she was born in a town... Which a little, was very Frida. Yeah. It's very Frida Kahlo thing to do. Right. Um, she was born in a town called uh, Coyoacan, mm-hmm. which is outside of Mexico City. And she was born in that house, La Casa Azul, the blue house. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. There, there's a lot of um, parts of her early life, like the year she was born, mm-hmm. where other people say, like, nah, she's actually born nearby, but she says she was born there. So, uh, like her birth records indicate a different place, but I gotcha. it's, uh, we'll say she was born there. At the very least, it was her family's house, right? Oh, yeah. And she, it was, it was in her life for her whole life, so much so she actually died in that house. Yeah, and it's a museum now. Yes, it is. It's a national museum dedicated to Frida Kahlo. Mm-hmm. Pretty so you, cool. We can visit. Right. So, um, she was born in 1907, they figured out. Apparently you figured out. And her father, was he German or Hungarian? Because I saw both. Well, here's another little thing. <laughs> where... <laughs> oh, boy, this is going to be a long one. <laughs> he was German. He was born in Germany. Uh, but Frieda always said that he was of Hungarian Jewish descent. Mm-hmm. But that just doesn't appear to be true. Okay. Like ancestry genea- uh, genealogy records. So was he like German Protestant or something? Uh, German... Um, uh, Oh, what? Lutheran? Lutheran, I think. That's Protestant, I think. I think so, but I think I think it was Lutheran. I can't remember. Okay. But his name, um, depending on, it was Carl Wilhelm, but when he traveled to Mexico in, in the late 1800s, he, he changed his name. He took the translation, the Spanish translation, of his original German name, which would have been Guillermo, apparently. It's a great name. So uh, is Wilhelm, though. Yeah. And then 1894, he became a Mexican citizen and married her mother, uh, Matilda Calderon, who was um, American Indian and Spanish. Yeah, and we should say Frida, Frida's full name is Magdalena Carmen Frida Calo y Calderon. Great name. It is. Really, there's a lot to it there. Basically gives you everything you want, right? That's right. So um, she was born in... When someone else I came to admire from researching her is her father. He seemed to have been a pretty cool cat. He was a really good dad. Her mom was a little bit his, religiously hysterical, I think, mm-hmm. and very strict. Yeah. But her dad was a bit of a foil in that he raised Frida. He noticed something in Frida, it seems, that she was different from her sister's. Which she screamed. I mean, just like she dressed in men's suits and things like that. She was mm-hmm. definitely different than her sisters. But he saw in her something very much different than her sisters, not just in her outward behavior. And so he kind of plucked her out of the the path that his sisters were on, which was, you know, go get married or go be educated in a convent, go mm-hmm. get married, go be a, a wife, and said, you, you're going to go a different path. Let's get you in a different school here. Yeah, he was a photographer, so her first experiences with art were uh, accompanying him on photo shoots and being in the studio with him. Mm -hmm. And like you said, he sent her to the German college in Mexico City uh, where she was introduced to uh, European things. Mm -hmm. And um, 
very sadly, she was sexually abused there yeah. uh, and then ended up going to and I think was one of the first one of only 35 uh, girls, young girls to go to the National Preparatory School in uh, Mexico because that was right around the time of the Mexican Revolution. Yeah. He said maybe we should start letting uh, young women in here. Yeah, and, they and she did. wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, she excelled in in biology and some others, and was on a path to become a doctor actually. But one of the other things that she discovered at the um, the Preparatory Academy of Mexico City was uh, a real zeal for the Mexican revolutionary spirit. Yeah, I mean, not only did she learn about Europe, but she got really into learning about her indigenous roots. Yeah. Um, that seems to be something that fascinated her throughout her life. Yeah, for sure. Was her her European and her Mexican roots. Yeah. And how they combined in her, and she explored them outwardly as well. She even had a painting called Roots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of on the nose. Uh, and roots were growing out of her body, even. Yeah. Um, we, we kind of skipped over one very important thing in her life. Oh, okay. Uh, when she was six, um, she contracted polio. And long recovery... Uh, permanently damaged one of her legs. She had a very, uh, one of her legs was, I think her right leg was smaller, just very skinny. Yeah, a little withered. Yeah, and she had a permanent limp from that age, uh, which was a big deal. It was just the beginning of a lifetime of pretty horrendous um, physical disabilities and pain. Yeah, she was alive on the planet for 47 years and starting at age six, you say? That's when polio, yeah, she, hit her. It, that's when it began. At the at the at the latest, it started at six and continued all the way up to forty seven when she died. Yeah. So at the in this kind of revolutionary group that she joined, um, the cachuchas, which means the caps or the hats, which apparently today is narco slang for cops in oh, Mexico. Yeah? yeah, cachucas, cachuchas. It's hard to say. Cachuchas. Yeah, because of the two H's. The ch ch. Yeah. It's like uh, Jason's coming or something. <laughs> um, she she fell in love with kind of the leader of that group, but really, like, she found herself as a revolutionary, right? Yes. And not just a Mexican revolutionary. She also became a, a communist ideologist and was for life. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that uh, they, a lot of people don't realize is Frida, Frida Kahlo, this pop culture icon, this patron saint of, of women, um, and feminists was also uh, very much a, a fervent communist, actually. She referred to her husband later, Diego Rivera, who you're about to mention, um, as nobody's husband. He was a lousy husband, but he was a great comrade. <laughs> this is a great quote. Yeah. So in 1923, that's when she fell in love with uh, Alejandro Gomez Arias. And uh, they were together for about five years. And we'll get to kind of what happened toward the end of that relationship in a sec. But mm -mm. in 1922, when she was just 15, she was at school, uh, at the preparatory school, and Diego Rivera, who was a very famous artist and muralist mm -hmm. at the time already, this giant man. Um, like Alfred Molina size. <laughs> that's who played him. Um, even bigger, I think. Yeah, no, he was huge. Uh, and, you know, just tall and rotund and just a big personality and everything. He like was, Edward Herman. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he was painting a, a, a mural at her school called Creation when she was just 15. And she would go out there and just basically kind of stare at him and while he was doing his work and sort of became infatuated with him and the art. I, I get the picture that it was all sort of intertwined. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, years later, they would meet and marry and then remarry, which we'll get into uh, the, the ins and outs of their relationship. But it was it was an interesting love story of sorts. Artists. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Should we take a break? Sure. All right, let's take a break, and we will talk about the, the tragic events uh, that befell her at the age of 18. Okay, Chuck, so like you said, something really bad is about to happen to Frida. She's 18. She's on a bus with a boyfriend who is the leader of the Cachachas. Cachuchas. Yeah. And um, they, the bus was struck by a trolley or vice versa. She was on a trolley struck by a bus. One of the two. And either way, it was a bad, bad scene for her. Yeah. She was impaled by one of the handlebars. It went through her pelvis into her womb, is how I saw it put. Yeah. Broke her spine. Um, she was in a bad way. And uh, supposedly her boyfriend walked away unharmed, which just makes yeah. it even worse, you know? Yeah, I mean, the way I got it was that, you know, everyone was shaken up pretty bad, but it was this sort of freak thing that this rail Im- impaled her hip mm-hmm. that, that she got the worst of it. Now, this would go on to be, in my opinion, the most significant event of her entire life. 100%. Because it would... It changed everything. It changed the course of everything. Yep. Remember, up to this point, she's planning on becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was so laid up for so long and so immobilized that she basically said, well, there goes my chance of being a doctor. I'm not going to be able to catch up. I'm not going to be able to move. Who knows if I'll be able to walk again. Um, and it just shifted direction. Plus, that whole womb thing is going to come into play later on. And that will definitely influence her art for sure, too. Yeah, so she's um, she's bedridden for months. I think she had something like thirteen or fifteen surgeries for, from that point on for the next like thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that she was a great painter, which must have been something mm-hmm. to be like. Well, I'm in this hospital bed that they're equipping me with this uh, special easel that I can use in my full body cast lying down. Yeah, they're gonna put a mirror. On, on the ceiling above me so I can be my own model. Right. Uh, and she was very much known for her self-portraits. And she starts painting and is amazingly talented. Yeah, and at first she, she was saying, okay, well, I can't be a doctor, and apparently I have this knack for painting. Maybe I'll be a medical illustrator. And once you hear that, when you see some of her work, you're like, oh, yeah. She basically was a medical <laughs> illustrator. Yeah, but uh, in a uh, exploring anatomy as a metaphor for emotion. Yes. From what I understand, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this might be hyperbolic to say this, but I don't know of any artist that poured herself out on the canvas as much as she did. Certainly not up to that point. Yeah. Especially female artists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Up to this point, when, when Frida Kahlo came along, like women were, if you were emotional, you were hysterical, mm-hmm. one. But you certainly weren't, if you were a woman artist, you certainly weren't expected to explore emotions and grief and personhood and the self 
and, and you certainly weren't expected to do it in your paintings. And she said her works showed that mm-hmm. that was not the case. It wasn't even like a, you shouldn't do this. It was women can't do this. Yeah. And she came along and said, eh, actually, we can because I'm living proof. Yeah, and if you're a man, you're just a brooding artist. Right. You're, you're melancholy. Yeah, if you're a woman, you're hysterical. Right. Um, or you're depressed. And she just, man, she laid it out there. Yeah. As yeah. raw as you could imagine, and especially for the time. It was just off the charts how radical it was. Right. So, so, and she's able to do this because her family set up a special easel in a mirror for her mm-hmm. to be her own model. Yes. Right. Yes. So this is a, this is a big thing. Like this is starting to come along, and she she um, passes the time while she's recuperating doing this, and she recovers enough that she goes back to school and starts hanging out with her old friends again. And from that re-entry back into the revolutionary slash communist world in Mexico at the time, yeah. she ended up in the orbit of Diego Rivera again. Actually, they ran across each other at a party. Yeah, and this was it, man. From that point forward, they would be, um, they would be tied to one another through their work and through their multiple marriages to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was 22. He was 20 years older than her. Uh, and he very much, um, he mar- he very much encouraged her early on. Yeah, uh, and championed her and was her mentor as an artist. Well, she went up to him at at this party and said, "I want you to look at my work and tell me, should I pursue this? Mm-hmm. this? Am I an artist or is this just nothing?" And he looked at her work and he said, "You are an artist. Yeah, this is astounding." Like, you have what it takes, and you should keep pursuing being an artist. And as a matter of fact, let's get married. Yeah, I mean, he was attracted to her, but um, I haven't seen anything that that led me to believe that any of the, his support of her work was not genuine. Right. And because he wanted to, like, get her in the sack. No, 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 he wasn't that kind of guy. He would get anybody in the sack. He certainly <laughs> didn't have to marry you, and he certainly didn't have to tell you you were a great artist. That was <laughs> below him. I saw a thing. They both had multiple affairs. We'll talk about that throughout their marriage. Uh-huh. And, you know, maybe or maybe not so understanding of each other doing so. Right. Um, but I saw at one point that he supposedly got his doctor to write a note that said that he was physically incapable of being faithful. <laughs> really? That's, I don't know. So, that's so Diego. I don't know if that's true or not. So he had – I just want to get this quote in. He had a great quote about her. Um as an artist, he said that she was a realist as far as her art's concerned. She was, quote, the first woman in the history of art to treat with absolute and uncompromising honesty, one might even say cruelty, those general and specific themes which exclusively affect women. Yeah. Like, that's, those are pretty strong words from a renowned artist who, I mean, Diego Rivera was world renowned by this time already. So when he looked at her art and had things like that to say about it, it really meant something. She was, if she ever was an outsider artist, she wasn't anymore. She was a genuine artist. She'd been decreed as such by the cream of the crop. Yeah, and she, um, I think the article on our own website downplays a little bit her successes during her life. Mm -hmm. It's certainly nothing compared to what she got many, many years later, decades later after her death. Um, They weren't freedom maniacs back then but she wasn't she also was not just completely unknown right as an artist i mean she got some notoriety during her life she got to know picasso she got to know i mean these were the circles she traveled in Mm -hmm. partially because of of diego rivera but um they started moving around you know starting in the 1930s 
Uh, they didn't stay in Mexico. They lived in San Francisco for a little while, uh, depending on where the work was because he was a muralist. Right. So he had to go to the place where he was doing the yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. He can't say, I'm going to send you a mural. Just R- right. tape, tape it up. Send me a wall. <laughs> and he had her in tow, which I get the impression like sometimes she was a willing accomplice and other times she was very much homesick for Mexico. Yeah, she for sure missed Mexico. I know she did enjoy her time in like New York and say, I don't know if she loved Detroit. I don't know if anybody did. <laughs> they moved to Detroit while he worked for the Detroit Institute for the Arts. But uh, very famously in, ni- in the 1930s, they lived in New York City when uh, Diego Rivera was commissioned by Nelson Rockefeller, who in the movie, the great movie by uh, Julie Taymor mm-hmm. and Salma Hayek was mm-hmm. played by uh, Edward Norton. Oh, really? Yeah. Who, have you not seen that movie? No. Oh, man, it's good. Yeah, I'll bet. And once you hear the, uh, especially with the backstory now with the Weinstein stuff coming out, I mean, this was her passion, uh, Salma Hayek's passion project for her life, and uh, he put her through a living hell. It, it, it's horrifying. I think it was, it might have been the New Yorker, New York Times had a great article about it, but um, or that she wrote, I think. But um, I think what got me on that was Edward Norton was, uh, he, he he rewrote the script for like for free, because basically one of Harvey's big things was like I'm not going to give you any money for this like you got to do it for almost nothing Mm -hmm. everyone's going to have to work for free so she got everyone to work for free or you know scale Uh, from Edward Norton to Julie Taymor the great director and um, he he demanded a a, a lesbian sex scene (laughs) like literally was like I'm not doing this unless you do that and uh, she was bisexual so it wasn't like he created this out of thin air but he's like, I want to see this on screen. Yeah, um, She supposedly had affairs with George O'Keefe and Josephine Baker mm-hmm. and all these famous uh, female performers and artists. But uh, she did not do that. I think she I think she had a kissing scene with Ashley Judd at a party. Who is Ashley Judd supposed to be? Oh, I can't remember. I haven't seen it in a minute. Okay. Emily's mad that she's not here right now. <laughs> I told her about this last night. She's like, why am I not on? It's like, we don't have guests. <laughs> <laughs> nice. She's like, I'm a guest on Movie Crush. I was like, well, that's a different <laughs> podcast altogether. Sorry, Emily. Yeah. Um, she will pick this apart, trust me. But anyway, she had a devil of a time getting that movie made, uh, and it went on to great success. And I think still is the mo- highest grossing art-based movie of all time. Yeah, that's what I saw. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they were in New York City because Nelson Rockefeller, is played by Edward Norton, had commissioned Diego Rivera to paint a mural at Rockefeller Center called Man at the Crossroads, and um, in it, it was one of these big, um, almost looked like a Sgt. Pepper's cover, you know, had oh, all, yeah. people all over the place. I've seen it. And um, he snuck in Vladimir Lenin in the painting. So I have a question about that. Did he sneak it in and was caught, or was he like, and also, by the way, I've included this great man, Lenin? He snuck it in um, as a response, uh, as a very pointed response to something. And I can't remember exactly what it was. Okay. But it wasn't originally in the plan, and I don't know if it was in the original sketch. Mm-hmm. I might be getting this slightly wrong. But at any rate, he got Lennon in there, and um, Rockefeller was not happy. I mean, I think it was more of his family. Like, he, he stayed his friend. It wasn't like he was like, I hate you. You're big poopy pants. Go back to Mexico. Right. Uh, but he stopped the work. That painting was uh, – mural was removed and destroyed – but eventually... Was it destroyed? Yeah. Man. Pretty sad. But yeah. eventually, um, Rivera 
recreated that. Okay. A little smaller in Mexico City uh, and changed the title to Man Controller of the Universe. And then in parentheses, up yours, Rockefeller. (laughs) Maybe so, but that just sort of puts a button on them moving kind of all around the United States for a while. And this is when she was being introduced to uh, high society and Mm -hmm. and, uh, everyone from, like I said, Josephine Baker Mm -hmm. to... To Trotsky, and she was she was working at the time too, right? It's, it wasn't like she was just hanging out. Yeah, she was still painting. And one of the paintings she um, did was um, the suicide of Dorothy Hale. Yeah, that was interesting. So she was commissioned by Claire Luce Booth, Little Deuce Coop. <laughs> she was the um, she was from the publishing family of Time. I think she published Vanity Fair or something like that. She's a great publishing magnate. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was back in the 30s. And she was friends with Dorothy Hale, who was a, an actress, a well-known actress, mm-hmm. who had uh, hit on hard times financially and was having to live on the um, generosity of her friends. And she climbed up to the highest point of the high-rise that she lived off of and jumped to her death. And... It devastated Claire uh, Booth Luce, and I hope I get that right, at least <laughs> somewhere, And who was her friend, and she commissioned uh, Frida Kahlo to, um, to do a painting, mm-hmm. which she thought this would be a portrait to commemorate my friend Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. That's not at all what Frida Kahlo did. Yeah, I don't know if she realized who she was commissioning fully. Yeah. She's it, like, have you seen her work? Right. So what Frida Kahlo did was she took this assignment and, and commemorated... Not Dorothy Hale necessarily, but Dorothy Hale's death by suicide. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a step-by-step diagram. Mm-hmm. It shows her at the top of the building in midair, and then in the foreground, largest of all, is her broken, bloody body on the ground. Mm-hmm. But it has this very somber um, text caption, basically, across the bottom in a scroll that explains what this is and how sad this is. Yeah. Um, and that it was the, the suicide of Dorothy Hale. And so um, apparently when Claire uh, Booth Luce got got this, she unwrapped it and was like, what is this? Yeah. Almost gagged. She's horrified. And she was going to destroy it and friends talked her out of it. So it's still in existence today from what I understand. I think the Booth or Luce family <laughs> has has the, uh, the painting in their possession now. Yeah, and that's uh, just emblematic of Frida's outlook, which was... <clears throat> Like, she was no BS. She's like, I'm going to show you what's real. So let me ask you this. You're the Frida expert here. Well, no, no, no. Between the two that. of us. <laughs> okay, maybe. Was she doing that like, like, I'm all in your face, Claire. This is the reality of your friend's suicide. Or was it she, this, is, this was her expression of emotion that she thought Claire, I'm not saying her last two names, uh-huh. would, would, would kind of vibe on. And, like, this would be the greatest commemoration of her friend. Which one? Well, I don't think it was all in your face. I think she thought that was the honesty. I think she thought that was the most honest work. But I, I, I'm not sure whether or not she considered, like, wait a minute, is she going to hate this? Okay, so she wasn't, like, it doesn't matter. She hates it. This is the, this is the most honest work. So if, even if this psychologically destroys her. Claire needs to toughen up. I don't know. I'm very curious. No, that's a good question. I I understand a lot of the symbolism in her paintings now, but I don't necessarily, I haven't hit upon her motivation or personality quite yet. Emily's going to be so mad because she read her 800-page biography, and she's probably like, oh, well, read page 630, (laughs) jerks, and that'll explain it all. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry again, Emily. That's right. You want Um, to take a break? 
Yeah, let's do. Okay. Chuck, so one other thing, very big thing happened to her in Detroit, actually. Um, And she has a painting that commemorates it called Henry Ford Hospital. She had her second um, miscarriage. Yeah. And this, her miscarriages, I believe she just had the two? I think so. Um, But that's all, right? Right. Um, She, those would affect and influence her work for the rest of her life. Mm Mm-hmm. They deeply impacted her and not just emotionally impacted her, but they were themes she explored, you know, like, can you still be a mother to other things, Mm -hmm. even if you don't bear your own children? Can you, um, you know, like, like, how does it affect your femininity? That's a, it's, it's a theme that really affected her and she explored and it really is just right there in broad, bold colors mm-hmm. in Henry Ford Hospital. Yeah, I mean, she she very famously had uh, was a mother mm-hmm. to many animals. She had spider monkeys. Mm-hmm. She had dogs, cats, mm-hmm. birds. Mm-hmm. She had a pet deer. Um, all at her at her house. Uh, we have a great children's book called that I recommend called Frida Kahlo and Her Animalitos. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really really fun for kids, but um, and adults actually. But, yeah, she really wanted to be a mother, and it was devastating to her that she couldn't be. Right. Uh, and like you said, like with all her work, so raw and laid bare. Um, and, and I assume most people have seen her work. Like we'll talk about some of it a little bit. It wouldn't hurt to kind of brush up on these if you have a, a couple tabs handy while we're talking. Yeah, but lots of blood, lots of um, exposed organs. Blood vessels connecting her to things. Yeah, it's just um, – it's like you said, you don't have to work hard to understand what she's getting at when there's a painting of her with her like body cavity split open right. and like a baby bunny where her womb is. And right. Actually, I think I just made that part up. But that's a great <laughs> idea. I like that imagery. It wouldn't surprise me if that was one of her paintings. Sure. You know, um, there was a lot of um, pain, physical pain depicted in her paintings. And this is another huge theme or motif or whatever you want to call it. Um, to where her f- the physical pain depicted, and again, remember she's painting herself almost exclusively here. Yeah. Um, her, her emotional pain is depicted as physical pain, so like nails all over her body, mm-hmm. or she has a huge tear going uh, vertically up the middle of her body, and her spine is a Doric column that's crumbling. Yeah. Just just physical imagery that it did depict her physical pain too. She was always in a lot of pain throughout her life physically, but she also suffered a lot of emotional and psychic pain as well. And all of it was combined as physical pain and evisceration and being laid open in her paintings. Yeah, and uh, eventually she would meet André uh, Breton. Is it is it Breton or Breton? Breton, what I think did I say? So. The, fa- the father of surrealism. Yeah, and he is the one, uh, she actually, um, in a funny way, kind of said she never considered herself a surrealist until Andre Breton came to Mexico and told me I was one. <laughs> yeah. uh, really, I do not know whether my paintings are surrealist or not, but I do know that they are the frankest expression of myself. Yeah. Um, but she is, if you want to classify her art-wise, surrealism or magic surrealism is uh, definitely categories that her, a lot of her work fits under. So I saw a, um, 
I mean, we, we used a lot of sites for this. I can't remember which one it came from. But I saw a description of her work as um, that she was an individualist, which yeah, means like nice. she was her own thing. Mm-hmm. She may have had influences, and she definitely had Mexican indigenous art influence. That yeah. was a huge thing that really drives like the visual um, impact of her paintings. Mm-hmm. But as far as like schools of art go or movements, she was she tapped into primitivism, indigenism, magic realism, surrealism, and um, again all of it combined to make her an individualist artist. Well, yeah, you mentioned the um, her indigenous roots and and she very much at a, and I think Diego Rivera is one who really encouraged her to embrace that and she started uh, she kind of. I mean, she wore suits and stuff sometimes when she was a kid, but she wore more European style of clothing when she was younger Mm -hmm. and then really started wearing uh, more Mexican. Indigenous stuff? Yeah, really colorful stuff. And uh, most famously captured in maybe her most famous painting, The Two Fridas, in uh, 1939. It's the double Mm self-portrait that uh, on one side it shows her in the more modern European clothing. um, And then on the other side... It's her in her uh, more indigenous Mexican clothing. Right. And both of them have their hearts exposed. I think on the European side, the arteries are severed and things. On the Mexican side, it's intact. Uh, the heart is intact. Uh-huh. Uh, really, really pretty. It is very pretty. A lot of her work was pretty. Some of it, sometimes it's like it looks very primitive. And then other times they're in some details, like the eyes of a cat mm-hmm. or something like that. You're like, wow, that's really it's very like fo- almost photorealistic. Yeah. So it's it's very weird to me how her, um, I don't want to say her talent, but her, yeah, her visual talents kind of were applied in some places and not not as much in others. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what the details were that that made her make those decisions. Yeah, she included her pets in a lot of her paintings. I think 55 of her paintings featured her pets. Um, some very famous ones with her, her spider monkeys and birds on her shoulder. Uh, my favorite one is called What the Water Gave Me. Um, it's a, it's a well, I guess it's a self-portrait in a way of her in a bathtub from her vantage point. So you just see her, her feet and toes sticking out at the end of the tub. Mm-hmm. And then the water is just full of all kinds of other stuff. Like uh, I don't think I've seen that one. It's really nice. Like there's a volcano with the Empire State Building coming out of the center of it. With like gangrenous lava flowing over the sides, wow! Because she would get gangrene later in life, mm-hmm. just another physical malady, and had one of her legs amputated below the knee. Yeah, uh, there was a, a dead bird, a one-legged bird, um, being pierced by a tree. Uh, there's a nude woman floating next to her dress. Uh, looks like her parents on their wedding day, and it's it's all like in the bathtub water, um, with her feet and toes sticking out. One toe, of course, is is mangled and, and cracked and bloody. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much gruesome, so many gruesome aspects to so much of her work. Right. But um, Cause it, it kind of punches you in the gut. Very much. Like it's to see these things in, in person is like, especially if you're a fan of her work, to actually stand in front of one of them and put your nose six inches from it huh. is uh, it's really pretty, pretty astounding. Do not sneeze. No. <laughs> um, Do not sneeze on the art. They have signs everywhere. <laughs> this, uh, this article, our How Stuff Works article, points out the wounded deer. Yeah, that's a good one. And my birth, both in the same paragraph here. Those are two of my favorites, actually. My birth is so 
just just twisted, but it's also really simple and straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's her her mother, but you assume it's her mother. The, the sheet's actually placed over her mother's head, so you never see her face. And you also kind of get the impression that it could be Frida as well. Um, but it's Frida's head, mm-hmm. grown-up Frida, like coming out of the birth canal, mm-hmm. the womb, as it were. Yeah, very I graphic. feel like such like a 19th century like white guy calling it a womb, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But... um. Yeah, it is graphic, but it's also, it looks, it, it kind of, I don't know. I don't want to armchair critique it or anything like that. I just yeah. like that one. Um, and then uh, The Wounded Deer, I think, is awesome, too. Yeah, we should probably apologize to every art historian and, and critic. Like, when it comes to art, I love, and I know you do, too, love going to museums. Mm-hmm. And you're probably where I am, which is, I, I just like what I like. Like, you know, if it looks nice to me. Right. And nice doesn't mean, oh, that's pretty. But, you know, if if, if it touches me in some way, then I'm like, I like that. Sure. I, I don't. Uh, that's I enjoy, what art's supposed to do. I enjoy reading the placards and then understanding yeah. a bit more behind it. Yeah. But I'm definitely not some art historian or, or critic. Although I do appreciate being having art explained to me by art yeah, historians and critics, by people nice. who know, like Sister Wendy, that whole series from the 80s or 90s. I don't know that. Oh, man. I've told you about it before. She's this nun who understands art better than anybody in the world. She had like a a little PBS series for a while where she could just explain art. Mm. And you just wanted to watch the next episode so bad. Yeah. But I think the level that you and I are at that you were characterizing is um, it was best captured on a Simpsons (laughs) (laughs) where there was a museum audio tour that was narrated by Melanie Griffith. (laughs) And when they put it on press play, she's like, oh, let's see what's in this room. Oh, this one's nice. I like this one. <laughs> oh, look at that one. What's in the next room? Oh. That's the level we're at of understanding and appreciating art. Melanie Griffith level. <laughs> uh, we, we briefly mentioned Leon Trotsky earlier, the exiled communist and rival to Stalin. Um, they were friends and, and they hosted him, uh, she and Diego Rivera at the Blue House, and supposedly had a brief affair Um Although other people have questioned whether or not was whether or not she really did, uh, because of I think last year a lot of her love letters to Diego were published. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's really interesting their relationship. You know, they divorced in 1939, um, remarried the next year in 1940, mm-hmm. lived in separate houses. They both had their infidelities, but um, a really interesting, complex relationship. Um, mentor, student, uh, lovers, friends, mm-hmm. uh, rivals as well in some cases. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's hard to obviously as an outsider encapsulate it on a podcast, but uh, a very complex relationship full of respect and admiration on some levels, but also uh, he was also that, you know, sort of of the time uh, in Mexico and America, just that male macho. Yeah. Thing going on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for goodness sakes, he tried to have his doctor write a note that said he was physically incapable of being faithful. Right. So let's just say male-dominant, complex marriage and relationship. Well, I also saw she could kind of, you know, put up with his affairs, and and she definitely had her own. But supposedly he, his affair with her younger sister, like, really crushed her. Yeah, that that was, I think, led directly to their divorce. Yeah. Which, it. I could see that. Yeah, that was uncool. 
Yeah. Diego. Yeah, even with a doctor's note, Diego. Yeah, and he he died just a few years after mm. her, I believe, right? I don't know when he died, actually. Yeah, I think he died three years after her. Um, by the 1950s, her health was really declining. She kept having these surgeries, kept painting. Uh, in 1953, she had a solo exhibition. And, I love this. Man, she couldn't get around, and this is so great in the movie. They, uh, she wasn't going to go at all, and then they brought her in by ambulance, brought in a four-poster bed, mm-hmm. and that's where she was in the gallery. She was laying in bed, like, greeting people. Yeah. She received everyone while she was in bed, bedridden. Pretty amazing. Um, and she died a couple weeks later, I think. Actually, I think the last time she was seen in public, she showed up for a protest against the U.S.-backed coup that overthrew, overthrew Arbenz in Guatemala. Yeah, Edward Bernays coming back in. Right. Into the picture. Every time. Yep. Um, and she, she died again at age 47, man, after a life of pain, but a very a very productive life of pain, too. She yeah. She changed things quite a bit. Yeah, and with her death, she um, it's listed as uh, pulmonary embolism, but uh, they never did an autopsy, and they're— it's generally believed that she committed suicide. Oh, by uh, how? Pills. Uh. Her her personal nurse said that she uh, took 12, I think, painkillers uh, when she knew that her max was seven. And uh, <laughs> earlier that evening, she had given Diego an anniversary present a month early, oh, okay. which it, it all kind of adds up in the chronic pain. And just, you know, this was after polio, after gangrene, after amputation, after yeah. pneumonia. After the bus accident. After the bus accident. So, um, yeah, she may have just ended it. Wow. Understandably. Yeah. So her, when she died, like you said, she was, you know, fairly well known in certain circles in the art world. But when she died, her work kind of entered into obscurity for a few decades. It was dormant. And the, Yeah, that's well put. <laughs> and then in the late 70s, it was rediscovered. Um, by, by, I guess, nationalists, you could call them, art nationalists in Mexico. And she has been basically a pop icon ever since. Once her story was really um, established and built and her, her work came back out, she's just never really left the, the art scene since. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, if she is in a museum near you, go check it out. Do you want to do you want to talk about the, her uh, famous eyebrow? Because I think this this article did a really good job of addressing it. Yeah. So she had she painted herself. She very famously had what you would call a unibrow, right? Yes. And she would paint it a lot. But the article on House of Works quotes a um, a book by Desmond Morris called "The Naked Woman: A Study of the Female Body," and he basically says Desmond Morris says that like women will will pluck the their unibrow into nothingness, mm-hmm. like religiously. And that it takes a woman who is above fashion to to flaunt her unibrow. Yeah. And that, that perfectly that that term above fashion perfectly encapsulates Frida Kahlo. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a pretty cool thing because Desmond Morris wasn't talking about Frida Kahlo. This article went out of its way to go find that and bring it in. I think it analyzes her appreciation of herself inside and out pretty well. Yeah, I mean, if there was one thing that she did on her canvas was say, this is me. Right. In every single way, inside and out. And her uh, her legacy in the art world, especially among uh, among women and uh, female artists, is, is 
like the the one article we read said you just can't overstate the importance. Right. Nice. Good you stuff. Any, you got anything else? No. I apologize for all the mistakes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, let's do a Andy Warhol one next. I tried to do right by this one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was apog- uh, apologizing to Emily specifically. Right. There. Sorry, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you uh, want, if you're not Emily and you want to know more about Frida Kahlo, <laughs> uh, you can search her on our website. There's actually a pretty decent little article, and then there's tons of stuff. Go look at her art all over the web and in person. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this mistakes d- in defense of us. Oh, okay. Hey guys, I'm sure you get annoyed at the influx of emails you get every time you make a mistake on your podcast. At least that's what I gleaned from a few recent episodes where you anticipate people writing in and correcting you in effect. Right. How ironic. Yeah. Um, I'm writing to counterbalance that. You guys do a fantastic job. Uh-huh. I'm amazed that you were able to cover topics in such detail with such high turnover rate. Uh, with how quickly you produce episodes, I would expect so many more mistakes or sloppy work, but not not with you. Man. Excuse me. No, not with you. <laughs> I kind of like not not. Yeah, I do too. Um, I'm starting my own podcast, and it's made me deeply appreciative of how talented and gifted uh, you guys are as hosts. One day, I hope I'll be as smooth and easygoing as you are. As always, please keep going with your work. You're my favorite podcast. also want to give a shout-out, especially to your Trail of Tears episodes. I recently went into the archives and listened to those, too. Uh, you told that story beautifully. I think you really did it justice, and I would recommend that anyone who hasn't listened go back and listen. Anyway, seriously, thank you for adding something fun to my life. And that great name is from uh, Shalina Bathala mm-hmm. or maybe Batala, depending on how you pronounce it Okay. Uh, and she is the host and I asked her well, you're a bad plugger of your own work because mm-hmm. I don't even know what your podcast is going to be about but it's coming soon and it's called Worth It yeah uh, good title yeah everyone that is how you get your podcast plugged on stuff you should know <laughs> that's right <laughs> whoa 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 breaking news Oh, yeah? Frida Kahlo (laughs) came back to life. No, I just got an email reply from Shalina, and she said, my podcast is about helping people create a life that they're happy with. Nice. I think a lot of people uh, feel lost, don't feel connected to themselves, or feel scared to do what they actually want to do, like pursue a creative career or do something that makes far less money. So I talk to people who have been there or who are still there about their journey and what they have done to create happiness in their life. It's going to be good. Yeah, good when, job. That sounds great. Yeah, hurry up, Shalina. Yeah. Okay. Best of luck with Worth It. Coming soon to a podcast distributor near you. Wherever you find your podcasts. Right. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. I'm at Josh M. Clark on Twitter, and Chuck's at Movie Crush on Twitter. Um, you can also hang out with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff you should know or facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. You can send us all an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 